So we've spent this uh, day now, pretty much since you arrived yesterday, a bit more than a day, here together engaging in meditation and uh, sitting and walking and standing and being here. And you may sometimes wonder in the face of the various different experiences that arise, well, how does this comprise a path of peace and happiness? Given the uh, title of the retreat, one might sort of, well, how does that connect up? It's not as if sort of sitting and walking and standing is just some sort of instant revelation of uh, sort of unending bliss and ease and comfort and peace, it seems. And it's, a, I think, a question or a topic that is of universal interest. We're all... I think, interested in happiness. We're all interested in peace. And I would uh, imagine, though clearly, of course, not having met all of the people on this planet, uh, that nonetheless, in one way or another, that is pretty much what everyone is interested in, although we might have different words for it and how we would express that. But there's this natural inclination, this natural pull or yearning, we could say, for what those words represent to us, happiness, peace. And although the interest in this is universal, the way we might go about attaining that is not, it seems, that clear. It's obvious that simply being born and raised in whatever sort of way it happened for us or for you doesn't guarantee that we live our life peaceful and happy. It certainly doesn't guarantee that the world is filled with peace and happiness. We see that. And sometimes it's really quite, I think, easy to imagine that somehow it's my fault, or your fault, or someone's fault, that it's this way. It's like, it shouldn't be this way, should it? If we want to be peaceful, if we want to be happy, why shouldn't we be? Why aren't we? In fact. And Essentially, in terms of the teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha Dharma as we call it, what is addressed to this point is the, the perspective that because we don't understand truly what brings happiness, what really brings peace, we don't find it. And that seeking that understanding is really the key to our life. We seek happiness and we seek for the end of suffering. This is kind of natural. This, is, this isn't surprising or news to any of you, I'm sure. And the Buddha, in his teachings, spoke again and again about this particular topic. He said, in fact, and very famous for saying, or well you know, known for a statement, I teach one thing and one thing only. Now, actually, the Buddha... The teachings of the Buddha fill vast volumes. It looks like he taught a lot of things, which he did. But in the end, what he said, it comes down to I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. Now, a friend of mine in America once commented rather sagely, I thought, he said, well, that sounds like two things. And then he went on to reflect, well, maybe the Buddha started off just, I'm teaching suffering, just one thing, I teach suffering, but... People weren't that interested. <laughs> so he then thought, well, actually, maybe what we need to do is teach suffering and the end of suffering. Because although the Buddha's teaching is 
very much oriented towards understanding the cause of suffering, and it could seem to be a lot about suffering, it isn't really about suffering. It's about the end of suffering. It's about finding peace, about realizing happiness in our lives. And so we speak about this path as a path of happiness, as a path of peace, because this is really the orientation of Dharma practice. And it might seem really difficult at times. It might seem really challenging. We might wonder, can I do this? Maybe it works, but I don't know if it works for me. Because, wow, I can barely even find my nose, let alone my breath. Some of the time it seems like that, doesn't it? So many of you are reporting the sense of, I can't really quite seem to do it because my mind's all over the place or my body's so difficult to be with. Or my life has been so complicated or painful or confusing. And yet, despite all of this, it's possible for us. And to really give our life to this because we care for our life to make it a priority and a central point in our living and our choices and how we engage this seeking this positive and wholesome aspiration to find peace to find happiness and one of the things with this is to be able to start from a place of forgiveness towards oneself for the all the ways in which we got it wrong up till now and made mistakes because we didn't really know or understand how to live skillfully. There's a, there's a great story from a, a Zen student going to visit his, his teacher, the Zen master, and, and he has this one opportunity for an audience, a personal audience with a great master of his lineage who he's never been able to speak to before. So he's really excited. He goes up and he, he, he's, he's just got this very short time. He says, can you tell me what's the most important thing? And the Zen master said, what's the most important thing for happiness? He says, good judgment, said the Zen master. And the student says, how do you get good judgment? How do you bring that about? The Zen master says, experience. How do you get experience? Bad judgment. And I suspect we all recognize that truth. This is how we learn, how we grow. We make mistakes. And if we can look towards what didn't go quite the way we wished or hoped for and learn from it, then it's all part of the journey. So to be able to, despite the struggles and the challenges of life, to be able to say, okay, this is an opportunity for learning, rather than somehow evidence that I've done it wrong or somebody else has done it wrong or there's something wrong with it life, you know, someone's broken it or it needs fixing. It's not really like that. And the Buddha said again and again, it's possible for you and for me, for each of us, to truly understand our life in such a clear and deep way that the sense of struggle within it is resolved. That's not to say that it therefore is just all easy and fun. He didn't say that. But that the sense of struggle, the sense of dissatisfaction, the sense of suffering and sort of burden of life is transformed. And so we're asked to look at 
What is this experience that we seek to transform? When we feel the yearning for peace or for happiness in our life, it's because we are exposed to the experience of its absence. Times of conflict and struggle, when we're not at peace. Times of sorrow and grief or dissatisfaction and frustration, when we don't have a sense of contentment or happiness. And to look at these experiences, to begin to explore them. To realize the peace and the happiness that is possible for a human being, we need to understand the conditions, the basis for how we experience our lives, whether happy or unhappy. And we also need to begin from a point of acceptance of the truth that it's not always easy, it's not always as we wished it to be. And that sometimes it's just really hard. And I'm sure you're all familiar with this. You know this. And yet there's a way in which we sometimes don't quite want to accept that this is so. We think that must be a mistake. And if I could just sort that mistake out, then it wouldn't be like this. It would be just comfortable and easy all the time. But on a retreat, we have the opportunity to reflect on this. We see what our experience is like. Because here on the retreat, the experiences that take place are in fact not different than the experiences that take place in your life. They're just simply presented in a way that you can see them more clearly because it's simplified and somewhat amplified by the sustaining focus and attention that we cultivate. And so we notice here we are on retreat and we experience all these things that are challenging. There's drowsiness, agitation, discomfort, doubt. You know, it's sort of like we, we, we kind of go through all these different things that weren't what we came here for. We didn't sign up to come along for drowsiness, agitation, doubt, confusion, irritation and boredom and all that just before breakfast. No. At least I don't know anyone who signed up thinking that's what they could you know, confidently expect. Um, and we sometimes find ourselves, you know, what am I doing here? Or it's sort of like we're waiting, we're waiting to get to the next thing. It's like I can't bear this meditation longer. When is he going to ring the bell? Did anyone have that thought today? When is he going to ring? You know, we've been in here for hours. He's fallen asleep. <laughs> it's an outside risk. But it's kind of like this, get me out of here sometimes. And then, of course, you know, bell rings. We, whew, great, walking. Ah, and walking, 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 walking. I'm like, oh, that's boring. <laughs> Maybe the next sitting will be good. Yeah. And then we're waiting for the next sitting, which just a moment ago we were, couldn't wait for the end of. It's like this process that we're constantly being pulled into something else. Or, you know, we start to think, I can't do this. It's too hard. My mind's all over the place. And this experience is very frequently reported where someone will be sitting in meditation. It's kind of like, oh, it's hopeless. I can't do this. They open their eyes, give up, stop trying to watch the breath and oh, I'll watch everyone else. You look around and they're all sitting there so calm. They look so peaceful. And you're like, wow, they can all do it. And I can't. It's like here am I with 55 sort of soon-to-be Buddhas and one overcooked vegetable, you know. It's like, 
And we, we believe that this is true. And in fact, we believe it and then we think, oh, hopeless. Then close your eye, collapse. Two moments later, the person next to you sits up, feeling kind of a bit frustrated, looks around <laughs> and sees you sitting there going, wow, that person's really calm. But they're having a great meditation. It's like we, we tell ourselves these stories and so often the sense of it can be, I can't do it. Everyone else can do it, but not me. And yet, it's just a story we're telling ourselves. It's not true. Because you are doing it. It's happening, despite your view to the contrary. Just by placing yourself here and allowing this process to unfold and doing what you can to be conscious within it. That's really the key piece. Doing what you can to be conscious within this experience of embodied life. That's it. Everything else is in the service of that. And from that comes the understanding. And, you know, it is hard. There are challenges. There's, and yet you're not the first person to face these. When I talked about drowsiness today um, in the morning and then was it after lunch briefly also and how we sometimes struggle with that drowsiness. God, sometimes it's so hard to stay awake, you know. And the Buddha spoke of it often too, as I've mentioned in the groups. And one of the instructions which I didn't give you has always caused me some, um, uh, somewhat, some degree of uh, humour with regard to my perce- perception of what it might mean, although not intended to be at all disrespectful. One of the things the Buddha suggested for staying awake was pulling on your ears if you're drowsy. And I always thought about that. And I thought, Gosh, maybe the Buddha had to deal with a lot of drowsiness because <laughs> if you look at any pictures of the Buddha, He's long healer. And it's just like, of course, it's a human being. And if not that, and if his ears were nothing to do with that, which classically in the tradition they were nothing to do with having to pull on them, that they were so long. Of course, some of you know that. But it's like there's a sense of, oh yeah, well maybe if... There's certainly are reports of the times when the Buddha had a sore back and had to lie down. You know, It's like, oh, that was a human being. Like us, like me, like you. And yet, someone with an immense amount of dedication and commitment. And that dedication and commitment towards awakening, towards peace, towards happiness, towards truth, towards goodness. This is what makes the difference. The dedication, the orientation, the giving of one's life. And I remember being very inspired a few years ago. It's quite some years ago now I last read this book. Um, the... Uh, story of the teachings and life of Master Kusan, a, a Korean Zen master, who was the teacher of Martin Batchelor, one of the, uh, the teachers here at Gaia House. And he, he reported that once going on a seven-day retreat, he was really drowsy, he could barely stay awake. But he'd committed himself to do this retreat to cultivate, we could say, merit in the traditional. It's, it's like to, to support his friend who was dying. He, he wanted to cultivate his practice and dedicate it to his dying friend. And he was so committed, despite all this drowsiness, he said, OK, I'm going to stand on tiptoes for my whole retreat. And he spent seven days meditating on tiptoes. And you think, wow. You know, I'm not suggesting you have to stand on tiptoes, but it's like, do you really want to be awake? How wholehearted are you with that? And many of you express that wholeheartedness in lifting up your arms or standing up or just you know, doing what you can do in the face of drowsiness or any of the other conditions. I'm just taking that one as one particular, but of course there's frustration, irritation, annoyance, despair, restlessness, grasping, craving, desire, 
anger, resistance, hatred, all these things that we can encounter in our hearts and our lives. And just saying, okay, I'm going to stay here and meet this. And why do we do that? What's the value of this? What's the point of this, we could say? Well, essentially, what we're starting to see as we engage in this process is that much of what's going on in our mind and therefore our life, which is driven by our mind, is kind of just happening. That we're not really in control or in charge of it. It's a little bit embarrassing, actually. It's one of like the first significant, profound in- insights we get in insight meditation is my mind doesn't do what I tell it to. And it's a little bit embarrassing. It's like, but surely if anything... You know, I understand when other people don't do what I want them to, but surely this thing that feels so close to me, should it follow my own instructions? And yet doesn't? Does anyone have the capacity to tell their mind to... Could you just be quiet for the next five minutes, please? Reasonable request. <laughs> or how about we just have a nice blissful experience right now? Just beginning now would be good. And maybe lasting up until supper time tomorrow would be... Can you do that? I can't do that. It would be nice, but it's not possible. And the Buddha once said... I know of no one single thing that conduces more to suffering than an untrained mind and heart. And I know of no one single thing that conduces more to the resolution of suffering than a well-trained heart and mind. So we can understand one aspect, a significant element of what we're doing is a training of heart and mind that's really been left untrained, educated in terms of its intellect. But that's a very different thing than trained in terms of, it, terms of its ability to live in this world. And there are three areas that we talk about in the context of this training. And the first area is the realm of action, of activity, the way we engage in our life. And the Buddha pointed out very clearly, and this is the foundation of it all, that our happiness or unhappiness arises as a result of how we enact our lives. And not necessarily what we do in our life, but where we're coming from when we act. The motivations that inform our actions are the determinative quality of our life. And basically... His understanding or teaching is that when we act from a place of self-centeredness, when we act from a place of greediness or selfishness, disregarding others, or from a place of anger or hatred, again, disregarding others, being quite happy to push them out of our way or cause harm to others, or when we act from a place of confusion or not truly seeing the way things are, this causes suffering for us. This leads to pain. And then when we act from a place of kindness, of respect and sensitivity for others, when we act from a sense of generosity and friendliness, kindness, from an understanding of how things actually are, this leads to happiness. And this is really the core of the whole transformative understanding. 
<coughs> and so we, we talk about establishing a sense of an intention not to cause harm. Not just because of the fact that it is nice for other people not to be hurt, but because it is a basis for our own well-being and happiness and our own liberation. But the, the process that the, the Buddha pointed out was one on which we basically the flavor of what we act from becomes what we receive. So that if you feel the taste of what it's like when you feel really greedy or selfish, not to say that's bad or you're bad for having, because we all experience it, but notice what it feels like. It's kind of tight and contracted and a bit yucky, actually. And that's what it produces, more of the same. Likewise, anger or hatred, it's very painful to experience, and it produces more pain. And the Buddha said, it's like if you take the fruit of a mango and you plant it, what would you expect it to produce? Sorry, if you take the seed of a mango, would you produce, expect it to produce seeds that are, sorry, fruit that are sweet and juicy? Yeah, that's a mango. If you take the seed and plant it, it'll produce some more. And then he talked, but what if you take the seed of a neem tree? And a neem tree, it's got medicinal properties, but it's very bitter. It's a well-known Indian plant. So if you plant the seed of a neem tree, what do you expect? Would you expect to get something sweet that grows? No, it'll be bitter. You can taste it, it's bitter. You plant it, it will be bitter. That's the nature of it. And what this means is that we can actually begin to sense and feel what we're cultivating, what we're creating our life out of by the the quality of what it feels like when we act in the world. But this is something that we're mostly not in contact with. We're not aware of even half the time where we're coming from, let alone what it feels like, because it's happening unconsciously most of the time. We're enacting patterns and habits of conditioned reactivity that we learnt from our family and friends and parents who learnt it from theirs and from theirs for it seems like unquestioned aeons of generations of human activity driven by fear and driven by need that really isn't that different than how animals are driven and yet as human beings we have something remarkable in our capacity to be conscious and aware of all this and so because we're unconscious much of the time we act things out that lead to suffering and we seek to become conscious in order to refrain from doing that so far as we can. And that is the basis of a transformation in the way life is experienced. If we're not conscious, we really have no great capacity to make the difference that we need to make. And so we come to this area of training that's really been the emphasis of the retreat is to do with cultivating mindfulness, cultivating presence, being aware and conscious of what's going on, learning to see the actual experience that's happening, starting to feel what's pulling or pushing or tugging at our hearts, what's driving or calling or moving in our minds, starting to get to see and know it for ourselves. Because that's the only place that we can really start to understand it from, our own experience. 
And so there's this intention towards developing a quality of focus, of presence, of harmony, coming back again and again to this. And that's what we've been doing all day, pretty much. Coming back again and again to this. And within that, learning how to do that skillfully. Seeing that being lost is basically abandoning ourselves. Being lost is to abandon ourselves. And there's something actually painful in that abandonment itself. In that loss of contact. That loss of conscious presence. That's painful. And it leads to enacting habits and reactivities that cause more pain that perpetuate the cycle of suffering so this process of training the mind how do we do this training the heart and mind how do we do this what many of you report is what seems remarkably common for westerners at least is the tendency is to try and beat ourselves into shape you know we see oh actually that wasn't so good being unconscious. Better I'd be best to be conscious. I'll try and be present. I'll try and be mindful. And every time I don't, I'll give myself a good thwack. Say, you messed up again. You know, do better next time. You're hopeless. As if that would somehow encourage us or make it more likely. So like there's this lovely kind of the image of a, of, a, of a training a puppy to heal. You know, if every time it wandered off, you went and hit it with a stick. Do you think it's going to want to come back? No, puppies run off. That's their nature. They go smell the flowers, chase the butterflies, decorate the trees, whatever. But if you actually see, oh, there you are, come over here. And just keep inviting it back. Eventually it realizes the puppy will say, oh, it's quite a friendly character, maybe I'll follow them around. It's like when you realize that your mind has spun off somewhere, wherever it be, however long for, rather than focusing on the fact that, oh no, spaced out again, how about noticing, whoa, noticed it again. Hey, in that moment, it's like the light's on already. And no need to worry about what has gone before. As uh, the proverb from India says, the light of a single candle will dispel a thousand years of darkness. And it's gone in that moment. It doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't need to be your concern. Just re-engage in that place, in that point. And so in doing this, that coming back again and again, the, having the courage and the dedication and the, and the love that it really takes to keep doing that in the face of a mind that sometimes wants to go anywhere but here. Just coming back, bringing yourself back, reconnecting again and again and again. It's like there's a certain strength of heart and mind that's cultivated. It's like focusing a beam of light that without a lens is just scattered and doesn't really show you anything. You can't see with it. If you've ever taken the lens off the torch, you just have a little light. It doesn't show anything. You have a little bit of a glow, but not much. You put a lens on it, focus it, suddenly it'll pick something out and you can see, oh, that's there. This is here. There's the space. I can go around this way. It's a bit like that in life. Without a mind that's focused and steady, it's like there's all this stuff going on and we keep bumping into it and we can't quite figure out the way through. But part of what I imagine for many of you, you'll be noticing as you start to steady and start to calm and still and in a slow and gentle way. It doesn't all happen at once. I know it would be good if it did, but it doesn't. That's how it is. 
you start to be able to see things more clearly. It's like, oh, that's what's going on there. Oh, that's why I react like this. Ah, okay, now I see that. Hmm. And we start to get a clearer sense of what's happening. And we learn that we can be with our experience. That difficult things do not mean we have to either remove ourself or remove the experience. And again, a number of you have been reporting the sense of seeing how something difficult, physical pain, some emotional condition, just seeing how sometimes it might go away. Well, that's nice. But other times it doesn't go away. But we ourselves seem to change in such a way that we're no longer struggling or fighting with it. And then actually it's all right. It still hurts or it's still uncomfortable or maybe scary, but... It doesn't mean we lose that sense of connection, that sense of presence, that groundedness and aliveness. We're not overwhelmed by it. And then it's already completely different, although it's still the same experience. Just that how we meet it is transformed. And in that, there's an immense discovery because the idea that peace and happiness is dependent upon reorganizing the world in such a way that it never upsets me or it never rubs me the wrong way? Good luck! <laughs> and yet we can live our life trying to fulfill that fantasy. I mean, see that even my own mind and body doesn't do what I tell it to. That's a pointer that maybe the rest of the world isn't going to fit in with my plans. But probably most of us, or many of us, will have tried at some point in their life to try and get someone else to fit in with how I'd like them to be. Hmm? Wow, painful, huh? And again, so how could we imagine the world would do it for us? And the other six billion human beings, let alone the rest of the inhabitants? Nah, best give that one up. It doesn't mean, of course, that we can't make a difference in terms of the actual situations and experiences of our life or in the world. But there's something different that happens when we start from a place of being at peace with it, of not struggling with it. We can still address and seek to bring about transformations in terms of what's happening. But first of all, finding the place of peace from which to act. Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a Vietnamese Zen master and uh, a great peace activist and a poet, a very uh, wonderful gentleman, um, is, rather than was, did I say was? He is. And uh, a writer of many uh, books and uh, delightful teachings. Um, he was once asked in a discussion about the Vietnam War while it was still ongoing, he said, he was asked, can you tell us, Thai, that's how he's known, what is the way to peace? In his response, he said, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Just to sense what that reorientation is like. Rather than, it's like it's something there we're trying to get to, the result of some activity. No, it's the actual, the journeying itself must be that. Peace is the way. So if we seek peace, what is it to make peace with our experience? If we seek happiness and contentment, what is it to discover that in the midst of all of this? Because it's going to be like this. Because this is how it is. 
This doesn't go away, it seems. So finding a sense of spaciousness and courage and willingness to let it be and begin to explore it. Begin to look into the nature of our life. Because only when we stop trying to extract something from it or make it different than it is or organize it according to our plans, our hopes, our dreams, only when we stop doing that do we have the possibility to start to really understand it. And understanding, seeing things as they actually are, this is the, the basis for true happiness and true peace. Seeing the way things are. The Buddha once said, said, fools seek to pursue experience. The wise seek to understand it. So there's wisdom. I find this a beautiful statement because there's wisdom in simply seeking to understand. It doesn't mean you have to have already understood it to be wise. It's like there's the shift that turns around from trying to chase after something which, so long as you're in the mode of chasing it, will always recede like a horizon, like chasing the sun. And we know this, don't we? There have been things we've chased thinking, if I get this job partner, house, car, pleasant meditative experience. When I get it, then I'll be happy and peaceful and it'll all be okay. And either we couldn't get it and it's frustrating, or we did get it, and well, it was very nice for a while, but then either we got bored with it or it changed into something else. No particular thing or circumstance or individual or situation can ultimately do it for us in that way but understanding the nature of experience itself, all experience, this, this offers profound possibilities. So, beginning to rest in your life, beginning to rest in your experience, not needing to struggle with it so much, we might start to notice that our attention tends to home in on the problem, whatever it is. Have you noticed that when of any number of things going on in your meditation experience, there's the breath, there's your body, there's your thoughts, feelings, there's sounds, that the one that seems to be the most uncomfortable, difficult or unwelcome is the one you're focusing on? Have you seen how that happens? It's like somehow the whole world becomes that. I had this amazing experience, well amazing, it was just very insightful, useful experience. Many years ago, I was uh, living in America, uh, it was about 10 years ago I guess now, and I was on the beach in uh, Massachusetts, and it was a gorgeous sunny day, it was clear, it was bright, it was sunny, the sun was just toasting my body with these exquisite sensations of pleasure. At least for about 99.9% of my body this was so. And on one, probably half of a square millimetre, there was a fly biting me. And was I miserable? Boy, it was like, ah, this is horrible, this is horrible. <coughs> and then I stopped to think, but, but why? It wouldn't be that if I had my body 99% covered with flies biting me and one little spot of sunshine, I'd be thinking, oh, that feels really good. 
So it's not because of that exclusivity. <coughs> it's because somehow we tend to fixate on and contract around the problem. And when we do that, we stop noticing what else is there. I mean, did any of you think, looking around, God, this room's a bit crowded. Not much breathing space in here, you know. hope everyone's going to have a shower, you know. <coughs> did anyone have that kind of thought? It looks really full in here, doesn't it? I mean, there's a bit of room down the front here. I'm lucky I get to look at it. But actually, this room is mostly empty, you know. There's a little segment, about is it a third of the room? About half full of people, if that. And the whole section from up there is empty. Have you noticed that? Did you ever sit in here and think, gosh, there's so much empty space in this room? Anyone have that thought? Probably not. And yet, there's a metaphor in that, a very direct metaphor for how we experience our life. It's like it's full or it's full of difficult things because we haven't learned to look and see where the space is because it's right here. It's right here enfolding and wrapped around everything that seems to be in the way or the problem. But so long as we're trying to sort out the problem, we can't see it. Because it's like we've got our eyes fixed on the, you know, that fly that's biting me. And I can't see anything else. Finding access to that sense of space comes very much from Resting in a non-manipulative attitude. Resting in a sense of interest and openness to what your life is. Rather than living out of a forlorn hope of what it should have been, might have been, could have been, should be, will be. All of which has no reality to it. And therefore provides no satisfaction. Not surprisingly. Seeing how that trying to get it to be a certain way leads us to all kinds of actions that are harmful to others, harmful to ourselves that lead to sorrow and suffering because we can't actually rest where we are and to recognise that this is how it is this world, this life, this experience is not in my control not in your control. It's one of the things that happens on a retreat is that we have that reality or that truth sort of shown to us a little bit more directly or clearly than we might wish. I mean, so many people say it's hard to be sitting in meditation. And it can be uncomfortable sometimes, but you know, you can change your posture if you need to. But what is it that's so hard to sit here for 40 minutes? I know it's hard, but what is it that's hard? It's having to sit here with a mind that's out of control. Isn't it? That's the thing, it seems. And why is it hard to have a mind that's out of control? Because actually we're trying to control it. If we weren't trying to control it, as you were before you encountered meditation, you weren't trying to control it, it probably wasn't a problem. It just was doing what it does. That tendency to sort of lock onto and try and impose our will upon life that is vaster than our conception and certainly larger than our conceiving and certainly larger than our capacity to manipulate it's like no it doesn't work that way and a certain humility in this something really I think important 
for us. Certain humility, understanding this. Uh, Gandhi recognized this. Mahatma Gandhi, the great heart, he, he once commented when asked about the struggles in his life, he said, I have three great adversaries, he said. The first adversary, who I can sometimes influence, though it's not easy, is the British Empire. <laughs> They're hard to influence, but I can influence them sometimes, I find. He said, my second, sorry, my second great adversary, the, much more difficult than the British Empire, is the Indian people. They're hard to influence. I have very little influence there, it seems. But sometimes I can make a difference. But my greatest adversary, this is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi, and with him I seem to have no influence at all. It's like, what's the wisdom that's pointing to? Again, it's not about abandoning responsibility or saying, oh, well, I might as well give up, it's all hopeless. It's all about a different orientation. Finding a place of non-reactivity, of non-manipulation in relationship to our experience. What does that reveal? What is it like for you in a moment where you're just with the breath? Or you just take a step? Or you just hear a sound? Because truly any experience is offering that same opportunity to just be there. What is that like? Because... We might not be able to say in words clearly what it like, what it's like, but there's something in us that resonates, that recognizes just in a moment of, ah, oh yeah. It's like we recognize something, it's familiar, and yet at the same time it's quite fresh and new. We don't know what it is, but we know that it is of significance. And it's easy, of course, to think, well, that was good, how do I get that? How do I keep it? And then, of course, it's gone. But if we can just start to allow ourselves, if you can allow yourself to be wholeheartedly conscious and present in your experience and let it offer to you what it is offering you without demanding that it offer to you what you want or expect or presume should be, then you can rest. You can rest. And life speaks to you when you receive it. To befriend it. To see that this is actually something miraculous, remarkable, inexplicable that we're here at all. And how tragic to spend our time complaining about the fact that it isn't quite as I wished it to be. And yet, of course, to have compassion for ourselves in those places where we do struggle, for those experiences which are painful, which maybe it's not like we deserve them, but yet this is what comes. This is the basis of learning, of growth. And to see that as we start to settle and rest more deeply into our experience, the sense of peace and satisfaction that we seek for is revealed, is discovered to be in this, in this quality of presence, of engagement, of simply being. It's not something we have to produce or manufacture or sustain or that arises as a result of what's going on. But more as 
the natural expression of a wholeheartedness, wholeheartedness and a, a deep respect and treasuring of what is, which is this right now, just like the way it actually is happening. Not different than this. It's hard for the mind to get that. It says, no, 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 no. Sort a few things out first. Fix this, change that. Then I'll rest and relax. But it doesn't work that way. So we have the opportunity here to try it out for ourselves and see what happens. To see that the places of difficulty or tenderness or challenge in our life, we can learn to be with them. We can open our heart to them in a tender and caring way and accommodate them within our life rather than reject them. That the sweet and beautiful and lovely things in life we can taste, we can receive, we can enjoy without having to hold on to in the hope that we could keep them forever. Because if we allow them to come and go as they do, we see open to receive the next thing in the next moment that is offered. And so then there's a, a natural peace that is found in that sense of, ah, deeper and deeper quality or possibility of trusting that what life brings to me does not have to be a problem. It can be difficult, it can be challenging, it may require me to learn or to grow or to look at myself, but it's not a problem. I don't have to be in conflict with it. We can start to actually trust our life, be at peace with it. And in that, there's a, a deepening inner connectedness with ourselves that at the same time is a deepening connectedness with life and with everything where what we connect with inwardly and what we connect with outwardly starts to be revealed as not different or separate, but part of the fabric of something indivisible that isn't something, but and yet at the same time isn't nothing. And so with this process, there's a, there's a deepening sense of the potential for satisfaction for well-being, for a quality of, ah, even in the midst of how things are, if the tape recorder doesn't work, so be it. That's okay. Really. Or whatever else. It's okay. That's not the most important thing. See, it's fighting back. <laughs> What is that satisfaction that is simply born of life itself, knowing itself as it is? This we can discover. This we can know, each of you, each of us. Feel free to just let it do what it does. I think it's doing what it's doing. It's okay. This is for now. That's for later. So, 
This is the basis of the path. And it is a path that really invites us to return to where we are, to discover truly what that means. And what that means is beyond what our minds can grasp, but not beyond what our hearts can know. And this knowing is the transformation of our life, the foundation of peace and of happiness. And the basis for living in the world in a way in which it makes sense. So let's just sit quietly for a moment or two together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.